Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy, and my profound thanks for covering my absence last week. Hello again, listeners. Hello again, Lucy. It's lovely to be back. (laughs) It's lovely to have you back and I hope you're feeling a bit better. Oh, I suppose this is, as they say, the shape of things to come. I had a sore arm. I twinged my arm. I may have indeed lifted something too heavy. I woke up one morning. It just was, that was it, gone. Ice packs, slings, the lot. Dear me. I know. Well, we missed you. And I couldn't chat to myself. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out it's not really a thing you can do. Well, I don't know, though. I feel like I do it quite frequently. But that's a whole other story. Well, it's very nice to be back. And I did have a very good trip away, which actually included seeing Lucy Dallas listeners in the flesh. That was lovely. That's the last thing that happened before you did your arm in. It wasn't me. <laughs> well, wasn't it? We went and had a cake and did forward planning, which we do best over a cake. Uh, and it was very, <laughs> very nice. But I had left the hills of Ireland and come over to London to do various things, including interviewing Ian McEwan, who we seem to mention every week now, but I did. <laughs> that's why I was there. I think next week we're good for Ian McEwan, I think. Yeah, probably. that's it. Would you like to hear the anecdote of my night out with Ian McEwan, which is, in fact, the anecdote of my night out after I'd interviewed Ian McEwan? Well, do you know what, Alex? I would like to hear the anecdote of what happened on your night out after you'd interviewed Ian McEwan. That's what I'd like to hear. Well, you know, one comes off stage from these kind of events, sometimes in need of a, a celebratory feel. And I had a pal with me and we went out to dinner. We decided to go out to dinner. I don't get to Did London very often. Celebratory hmm. feel? A celebratory air. (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay. One one would like, you know, I'm just clarifying. Glass of something nice and a, you know, a general bit of fun. Anyway, I went off to dinner a bit late, a bit late, in fact, largely because of road closures due to, you know, large public events, which were then ongoing. Mm. It's a bit late. Got to the restaurant, very apologetic and also clearly hot and flustered. And a delightful young woman who was looking after us, who was soothing us and saying, don't worry, it's fine. The kitchen's still open. Please don't worry. Said, what have you guys been doing? What's been going on? 
And at this point, I just want to say, oh, we've been to something that overrun. My friend, who is very much that kind of friend that you have, said, well, Alex has been on the stage at the Royal Festival Hall. I'm sort of slightly, you know, I'm trying to get under the table at this point mm. uh, with embarrassment. I'm kind of in full sort of mom, don't kind of mode. <laughs> and our waitress says, what do you do? And I say, oh, well, I, in- I interview people. And so who have you been interviewing? And... My friend says she's been interviewing Ian McEwan, at which point this lovely young woman says, no way, no, oh my God, Gandalf. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you just said yes. Why didn't I? Yes, it was Gandalf. Why didn't I? He did let me pass. Why didn't I? I just said, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. But there is a coda to this, which mm-hmm. is that my friend, who so far, as you can tell, has, is taking the blame for all of this, said, well, but I'm sure Alex has interviewed people from Harry Potter. <laughs> Basically, you know, completely outed as, as two old farts who don't know anything <laughs> about anything that actually people might like. So That's an excellent double whammy. I've squeaked back to the hills now in shame but I think we should just say that this week Lucy you're going to be at How the Light Gets In with the TLS's David Horsepool aren't you? Yes I am because you're bluntly refusing to come along to this one you do have a number of excellent excuses so me and David are going to be talking to Rana Mitter who actually we talked to quite recently about this is a difficult thing to explain, it was at the time, about how Chinese character became digitised and the process of that. He's a professor of history and Chinese politics and very, very knowledgeable and good at explaining things to people who don't know much about it, like me. But David knows all about it, so that will be great. And we're also talking to Sophie Ward, who was an actor and then became a novelist, book along listed for her first book, which is pretty good going. And uh, she's got a book out at the moment. And I think we're going to be talking about narrative in fiction and philosophy and history and politics, that sort of thing. So, yeah, do come down at 11 on Sunday morning at Kenwood House, part of How the Light Gets In Festival. And it's a shame you can't be there, Alex. I will be thinking of you. (laughs) Good. We've also been to the Globe, or at least Hannah Skoda has, to see a new play about Joan of Arc. And we'll be talking to her. But first... The poet Gary Snyder, now 92, seems to have packed several lifetimes into one. Environmentalist, activist, traveller, local politician and writer. A sometime associate of the Beats, he provided the basis for Jaffe Ryder, the protagonist of Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums, and his long life has encompassed periods spent in Japan, the building of an off-grid dwelling in the Sierra Nevada, and the publication of several volumes of poetry of which one, Turtle Island, won a Pulitzer Prize. Now his collected poems have been published, and Dennis Joe has reviewed them. He joins us now. Welcome, Dennis. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating piece and for coming to talk to us about it. I mean, I have to say, I begin with one of those sort of sinking feelings that you get when you read about somebody else's life, and you think, what have I been doing? I've done nothing compared right. to how, how could one person have accomplished so much? How could he accomplish so much and have so much adventure? I mean, he makes everyone else seem exceptionally sort of timid and unadventurous. Just put him into context for people who don't know his life. I mean, I was aware of some of his work, but I didn't know very much about him. Tell us about him. Sure. And um, I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people maybe unjustly come to him through Jack Herrick's novel, Dharma Bums, where he features prominently as the main character. And he's this kind of cantankerous, countercultural guru named Jaffe Ryder, whom the Kerouac stand-in meets in San Francisco. And they go hiking together. There's a very famous scene where they go and hike to the peak of a mountain and then start running down. And it's true that there's a lot of Snyder that's in that character. But I was also very interested in the fact that now we can see the full breadth of his poetic work together and the fact that he's a very prominent and very influential poet in his own right. And uh, Snyder was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. He had a sort of hard scrabble youth where his family ran a subsistence farm that he worked on. He had, you know, he spent his life pretty much in the great outdoors and would hike Mount St. Helens in his teenage years and sort of ended up on a scholarship at Reed College 
where he, he met a few of the other poets who would have an early influence on him and where he started to have an interest in studying Native American languages. And he was going to pursue a graduate degree, but ended up changing to study East Asian languages. And this kind of had a huge effect on him, where he became very interested in Zen Buddhism. He also started writing the kind of style of poetry that would become his own works, where he would combine kind of the geography and idioms of the Pacific Northwest with his study of Buddhism and of East Asian history and culture. So something very interesting happened where he started to get involved in this kind of nascent uh, San Francisco Renaissance, which eventually became sort of combined with the beats as they started to move out west. So Allen Ginsberg came and Jack Kerouac came, and there was a very famous reading in 1955 at Sixth Gallery where Snyder read, and he read a poem called um, At the Berry Feast, but then immediately left right afterwards to move to Japan, where he stayed for about 12 years. So there's this kind of moment where he enters our imagination in this one year, 1955, and then actually leaves the States for over a decade and studies Zen Buddhism very carefully, very devoutly. And following that, moves back to the U.S. and builds this off-grid estate, as you're saying, Kikadizi, and becomes a kind of elder statesman of both the kind of counterculture, but also of this emerging environmental movement. And he becomes involved in local politics and is kind of this unique example of somebody who also has a hand in kind of politics where he meets Jerry Brown, who becomes governor and who appoints him to the California Arts Council and, you know, has just continued writing constantly to this day and is able to comment on a lot of current events, has always been an outspoken voice on uh, environmentalism, but has also been very committed to his poetry and, and has developed his aesthetic um, continuously to this day. I mean, it's fascinating that just to stay with his sort of political life for one second before we move on to the poetry, but he, there's a strain of anarchism, isn't there, in exactly. his political mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. So that's not the kind of person you expect to find serving on boards and committees. Right, right. Um, it is kind of funny to think of this kind of ominous grease of, of anarchism kind of sitting at a school board with the kind of PTA meeting. But um, I think he sort of, he speaks about this very well, where he says that his anarchism as this word can sometimes be misleading and what he really believes in is self-government and the ability to kind of create your own ways of living and your own systems of living and for him that means being involved in the community in which you're a part of and this has always been a very kind of notable thing for him is that he thinks that you know we should be grounded we should be connected to the places the people that we live among and not only people and places but also you know the animals or the natural landscape and I think this is all just of a piece for him that, you know, if you are a poet, you should be this kind of individual who is curious and engaged and committed to the environment that you live in. Can I just say his engagement with the environment, as you say, started very early and continued. And now when you look at his concerns and also his predictions, I think you were talking about in Turtle Island, he writes essays, isn't he, a bit called Four Changes. Right. And he says we better watch out because this is what's going to happen and basically predicts what has more or less happened environmentally. And not only that, but suggests a lot of solutions, right. Right, which we're also doing. And he's been saying this since the 70s. He's, it's amazingly prescient and timely, isn't it? Exactly. I found it to be incredibly prescient. And I think I, I mentioned this in the piece where this is, you know, he's saying this a decade before the first congressional hearing where the term global warming became, you know, sort of part of our public imagination. And the reason why so capable of this kind of prescience is that it's true that he is also he's he's looking at the science he also knows what's going on but he also is just he has his ear on the ground and he can kind of see what's happening and also as a kind of spiritual malaise where people are not really having a lot of respect for the world that they live in and this kind of comes partly from his role as a poet as you mentioned at the end of turtle island this book of poetry he has a kind of pro section called four changes in which he essentially lays out everything that seems to be wrong about the direction we're going in. And this includes things like pollution. It includes things like the exploitation of the natural world, the overuse of fossil fuels, overdevelopment. And he kind of has a very cohesive and comprehensive political outlook of what we should do. And he is essentially gesturing toward things that people are maybe talking about a bit more now, such as a stable state economy or degrowth. But I was just sort of amazed by how fully formed and how kind of forward-looking this outlook he has in a collection of poetry, no less. You start with this wonderful quote that you mm-hmm. remember that he gave in an interview where he's he's asked 
about his place in the world I mean, his physical geographical place and he cites a kind of course from the pacific coast as you say where he grew up from big sur to british columbia alaska the aleutian chain and then coming round to japan the japanese islands and taiwan i mean his movement his sense of also uniting the cultural traditions of the countries and parts of the world that he was interested in seems to be absolutely key to understanding his poetry. Is that right? I think so. And I think that probably what one of the most important influential things about him is that he has kind of reshaped the geography of the poetic landscape or in terms of what we think as being connected or as being a part of one another. And so this quote comes in an interview he had with Elliot Weinberger, where he talks about what he considers to be home. It's interesting to me that he traces this kind of route that might seem somewhat esoteric or foreign to us, but might be the same as like a migratory bird or an animal. And I think he's essentially saying that we often create a lot of political boundaries or artificial boundaries that don't really make sense in a natural context or in a geographic context. And he has, I think, throughout his entire life, recognized a lot of the similarities and parallels between the environment that he grew up in in the Pacific Northwest and the environment of places like Japan or East Asia. And he's able to make connections that maybe span across ways in which we might separate these things artificially, but which actually are part of a lot of the same geographical formations. And how did he bring that to bear, do you think, in the poetry? Because obviously there's a tradition of nature writing, nature-based poetry in the US, but he brought something quite else into his own practice as a poet, didn't he? Right. I think that what Snyder was able to do was to draw on this pretty robust tradition of American nature poetry, but also to learn from a lot of other poetic traditions, whether that be the classical Chinese or the Japanese or the Native American, and to kind of learn from them and to kind of inject that into the American natural poetry tradition. And he's partly able to do this through his recognition that a lot of these poets from different traditions are writing about the same things, or they're writing about the same landscapes, they might be hearing the same birds, or they might be seeing the same trees. So I just found that to be a very powerful thing, that he's able to, in the same poem, write about Tacoma, Washington, but then also talk about Kyoto, and to actually view these as all of a piece. Talking about trees and birds, I love the Mm -hmm. point you made in the piece, and you say he doesn't say there was a bird in a tree. He'll tell you what kind of bird it was and what kind of tree it was. He's very concrete and specific, isn't he? Exactly. And that's something that I was struck by even from his first collection, uh, Rip Rap and Cold Mountain Poems, where I think I mentioned this in the piece, but you will always find something material, something to grasp on in his poems. And I think that's just probably from the fact that he's so observant and he values this attention to natural detail. And someone else who's walking through the forest might not really know what kind of bird the bird song is coming from or what kind of trees are walking past, but he's really able to tell you. And I found that to be something very valuable and very unique about his poetry. I wonder if you could tell us too about this long poem that he wrote, Mountains and Rivers Without End, which he started in the 50s and had been, as you point out, inspired by Chinese scroll paintings and again made that connection to paintings that he'd seen of the landscape of the Pacific Northwest. And it then took him 40 years before he published it. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that poem. Sure. So Mountains and Rivers Without End is, as you mentioned, a a long poem that he was working on for about 40 years. And he published a selection from it quite early on in his career, but then kept working at it through the decades. And he actually, he talks about the genesis of this poem where he encountered these kind of Chinese landscape scroll paintings um, at an early age and immediately saw in them a similarity to his own home environment. And this kind of started him off. He talks about the ways in which This started him off in his exploration of Zen Buddhism, his kind of poetic education. And part of it is this kind of ekphrastic poem describing these paintings, but it's also a kind of autobiographical jaunt through his life. And he sort of talks about the ways in which in Chinese scroll paintings, the mountains and the rivers are both these kind of uh, natural and physical formations, but they're also representative of kind of comprehensive worldview, whether that's the Taoist or the Buddhist. and, And he's able to sort of bring that to bear on the mountains and rivers that he grew up in in his own life. And how was that poem received? And I suppose that's leading on to a kind of wider sort of question about how his poetry is seen and has been seen and what place it kind of occupies now, I wonder. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, for much of his life, I think it's quite rare that he can be a very popular and accessible poet. And partly that's from the publication of Turtle Island, the collection that won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but also just from the fact that, and I think as he talks about, he's always wanted to make sure that his poems can be read and can be understood by the people that he has grown up in and lived around. And that hasn't been on the university campuses, but has been with the workers on the on the trail crews that he worked on as a, as a youth or in the forest service or a Buddhist monk or the kind of blue collar workers that he was growing up around as a, as a kid. And so he has, I think, for much of his life, been able to reach a very wide audience. I think also in terms of the way that he's received now, I think that's something I was kind of working out through the piece and that I'm very interested in where I think that this specific combination of things that Gary Snyder has been able to accomplish, I don't really see as much of that anymore. And I think part of that is the fact that Gary Snyder is someone who has devoted a lot of his life to you know, other poetic traditions or religious or cultural traditions that might not be necessarily be his own. You know, it's possible that many people would be would feel a bit more cautious about that. And I think that in some ways, Gary Snyder is a very interesting and useful reminder that if you are respectful and committed to learning from other traditions, you can you very much can make the part of your own and to produce something new out of it. Oh, I see. You mean to think that people might be worried about as though they were talking on behalf of another people or another tradition. But whereas he's been sort of steeped in those other traditions for years and years for the whole of his life really I think so yeah exactly I think that you know maybe Gary Snyder spent a lot of his life I think as you're saying just sort of learning from Buddhism or from Native American traditions and I think that while a lot of the reasons why we might be more more cautious of that makes sense I think he also is a good example and maybe useful example of someone who has really tried very hard to meet these on their own terms and to learn from them I don't know if the person he sort of kept coming to mind as I was reading your piece was the novelist and environmentalist and activist Peter Matheson, who must be in the same sort of generation. I mean, I think was born perhaps just before him. There seems to be, often we now see a kind of, I don't know, an antipathy, I suppose, between political activism and cultural creation. And I wonder if that's something that he and a writer like Peter Matheson, typify a kind of high watermark of that sort of engagement. Right. I think that there's something about that kind of coming out of their time and being a bit more prominent during their time. And it, it is, I think in, you know, in Four Changes, he cites all the various poets who have signed on onto this document with him. And I do think that in some ways, that's something that might be a bit, a bit lacking now, where I think when Peter Matheson or Eric Snyder were writing in their heyday, there was a sense that I think, you know, there's that slight line that poets can be the unacknowledged legislators of the world. And there's something that they've really taken to heart and have actually tried to bring into the political life around them. And it's true that we don't, we don't quite see that as much. You know, another kind of precedent for, for someone like Snyder is just, I think for him, it's also just coming out of, it's the way that a poet should be. And it's coming out of a lot of the classical Chinese poetry he's reading where it was just established that if you were a poet, you would also be a bureaucrat or that somebody who is part of the system that's creating the world we live in. And I think he says in that same interview with Weinberger that it's a skill that he is both good at and wishes that he was less good at is to be a kind of a good bureaucrat, to be organized, to be trying to make a change in this manner. Goodness, I'd really love there to be some poets in government, local or national or international <laughs> right now. Right, right. We could do with a bit more of that. Yeah. We really could. We probably could, yeah. yeah. It's a very holistic view, isn't it? To take the view of a poet. So the poet is not separate or you know art and culture is not separate from the rest of society Mm -hmm. it's part of it and you do the work within that and that goes with the view of the natural world that humans and then animals and the landscape are not separate we're all part of the thing so you do the work whether the work is you know looking after animals or being a bureaucrat Mm -hmm. or whatever it is Mm -hmm. he's very good about work isn't he he writes quite a lot about work exactly and I think he also um, he also says at one point that what he wants to do is to be a representative for those who don't have a voice in our democracy. And, and by that, he means the animals, the rivers, the trees. And I think he genuinely and really believes that if we had a robust democratic system, that would involve a way in which the national environment would have a voice and would have a say in it. And he sort of views this as to be partly the role of a poet, that they can provide voice to this, or at least a human voice to these things that don't have very much bearing on a political system. I found that to be quite touching and moving and definitely something that we could use a bit more of. And as you were saying, Lucy, um, 
that all comes down to work for him. And there's something quite fascinating about the kind of mundanity of the work that he's talking about, which is not this kind of grand sweeping. It adds up to a grand sweeping change. At the end of the day, it's joining your school board. It's going to local meetings. And he writes about the lot in collections like Axe Handles, where he's teaching his son how to whittle an axe and essentially saying that it's all these little acts of work that make up for the larger changes that we want to see. And I started, Dennis, by saying, you know, he just seemed to crammed such an enormous amount into what you know now is is a long lifetime I mean is he still creating in any sense I mean you know I feel he's deserved a long retirement but nonetheless he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would ever hang up his axe whittler or his pen no and um you know I'm sure he's very productive and probably to this day um I believe he still lives at Kicka does he I think for him probably a lot of the work that's just as fulfilling is whatever he's up to over there, whether that's fixing his pickup truck or or weeding the lawn, <laughs> or I think probably for him, those things are just as valuable. But I can only hope that he's just as prolific as he ever was. He's a living legend, isn't it? There's not many people alive who are the star of a Jack Kerouac novel. No, no, no. And it's quite rare for the, So this collection came out from the Library of America, and it's quite rare for them to Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on published collections from living writers, but I think he really deserves it. And it's true that he, both in his personality and his demeanor and through his life has gained the reputation as a kind of the mountain sage of American poetry. I think he deserves every bit of that reputation. Dennis, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about him. That was really, really fascinating. Thank you. And clearly this collected poems is is something that you really welcome on anybody's Mm -hmm. shelf. Yes, definitely. Well, thanks for having me. to come on the show we're joined by Hannah Skoda who'll be discussing a new play about Joan of Arc I Joan which is already proving controversial and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Before we move on, we must acknowledge, I think, the loss earlier this week, the rather sudden and rather shocking loss of Hilary Mantel. Alex, that was a horrible, unexpected event, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and a deep sadness, obviously, for anybody who came into contact with her, for her legions of readers. And, you know, it will sound grandiose, but I think it stands for contemporary literature. She was an absolute giant. Yeah. You were saying recently that actually you had spoken to her about this because there's a book still to come out, isn't there, about the book of photographs and she had written new material for that book. That's right. I interviewed her with her collaborators, Ben Miles, who plays Thomas Cromwell in the stage versions of the plays and who co-adapted The Mirror and the Light for the stage with her and who also reads the audio books, which are a very useful thing to send people Mm. to. And his brother, George Miles, who's a photographer, they have made a book of photography based on the kind of sites that occupy the trilogy. And it's a very sort of unexpected take. There's a picture right at the beginning of it in Hillary's introduction that says what this book is not. And beneath it is a picture of a sort of yieldy scroll with heritage shoppy. She and they hate that sort of heritage Mm. industry kind of presentation of history. So they had made this book over the course of many years. And yeah, that is coming out now. And I did meet her and she was absolutely sort of full of plans, most chiefly of which was moving to Ireland, which is is a, a very great sadness that she won't do that. You could see, couldn't you, from the Oh, the tributes from so many different quarters, a real sense of sadness and loss. And I wonder, actually, I mean, there was an immediate outpouring, but I think as time goes on, it will still be felt because one of the things I thought was, oh, no, now we don't have what she's doing next. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of selfish reader's reaction of, oh, I I can't read her next book. You know, I wonder what she would have done because she had wrapped up the Wolf Hall thing. And I think it's worth remembering that that's, by no means all she did, the Willfall Trilogy. She did amazing stuff before that that was completely different, didn't she? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her first novel that she wrote, Place of Greater Safety, is a historical novel, but she didn't get it published. It wasn't published. So it wasn't published first in the run, but it was her first book. Mm. But she wrote a, a number of contemporary novels. And of course, you know, just before Willfall came, Beyond Black, which you think of as a completely different kind of book, But really isn't, because it's alive to how the dead are present around us and how our previous lives and our conception of other lives, lives that exist beyond the kind of reality immediately in front of us, exist. And strangely, I did want to say this to her, in my great track record of suggesting my half-baked theories to the people who actually create the books, <laughs> uh, which cannot seem to stop myself from doing. No, don't but, stop. Carry <laughs> on. But I did suggest to her that Walpole had sort of, in a way, come out of Beyond Black. And, well, she didn't totally disagree. I'll say that. I do think there's a link there. And, you know, what a body of work. In many ways, what really people talk about how she brought the Tudors to life, the way that she created this character of Thomas Cromwell, who was completely captivated. But I think really she did all that with a kind of humanity. I mean, that was what inspired all her work, was this sort of understanding of humanity in all its extraordinary variety. And of course, power and of course, bodies and of course, Mm. violence, Mm. uh, sex, intrigue, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Also with a kind of fearless completely fearless mm. intellect like you got the impression well I've just there must have been there was a hell of a mind <laughs> behind that <laughs> yeah a hell of a mind and a hell of a commitment I think to you know I mean the the work yeah. ethic yeah. I think yeah. was absolutely extraordinary but I suppose one thing that always strikes me when I read her work or indeed talk to her because I was really lucky to interview her a number of times was just that the unexpected thought and the unexpected word would always sort of wrong foot you listening to her or reading her. And that's kind of just what you want, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I'm sure we will come back to her, to her work again and again. But now we're moving on. As last week, we talked about a new play opening at the Old Vic about the very modern and vexed subject of vaccination. 
This week, we're talking about a new play on at Shakespeare's Globe, a historical play this time about Joan of Arc. What could that possibly have to do with our time? Well, as our reviewer, Hannah Skoda, who teaches and researches Joan of Arc at Oxford University, tells us, this is a play which shows powerfully why the past matters so much. It uses that great megalith we call history to throw critical doubt on our present, our dogmas and our assumptions. So we're delighted that Hannah can join us today to help us navigate the great megalith of history and perhaps throw some light on the present. Hannah, many thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for asking me. We should say, first of all, uh, that this play, which is I, Joan, by Charlie Josephine, it's avowedly and overtly not worried about historical accuracy, is it? No, it's not. There are several very explicit comments over the course of the play about how this is not about historical accuracy and rather wonderfully towards the end, Joan, realising that they are likely about to be burned, says, fuck historical accuracy and sort of plead <laughs> the playwright to let them actually survive this time. Of course they don't. But at the same time, I have to say, from a historical perspective, I found a lot of it really extremely plausible. I was quite impressed with the level of detail about the various military campaigns that Joan was engaged in. Not that it really matters. And most importantly, I find the idea of Joan as a non-binary figure a perfectly plausible one, which is not to say I'm now absolutely convinced Joan was definitely non-binary. But from a historical perspective, I think it's perfectly plausible and it certainly provides an incredibly interesting and stimulating opportunity to think further, both about Joan and about what we're doing nowadays. Mm. It's interesting that you say that a lot of it was actually historically accurate. So it's not that they're just going, oh, we'll do Joan of Arc and then we'll just say whatever they want. Though, of course, you know, they could do that. They've obviously been quite meticulous about how to place it. And I, I read something um, with the playwright saying, we're not saying that Joan of Arc was definitely non-binary. We're saying mm. this is a version of Joan of Arc that could exi have existed. And you, as a professional historian, are saying, absolutely, that could have been the case. Why do you find it sort of plausible, believable that Joan could have been non-binary? So one of the things I found really plausible about the play is precisely this point that it's not sort of dogmatically saying one thing or another. It's opening up possibilities, both for the figure of Joan themselves and for everybody around them and for us now. And that sense of Joan opening up possibilities, I think, is precisely what she or they did in the 15th century. So just thinking about immediate responses to Joan, Jean Gerson, who's Chancellor of the University of Paris at the time, writes various kind of tracts and responses about Joan. And in one, he describes her as our pucelle, as in our virgin, explicit comment mm. on her sexuality, their sexuality, but then goes on to say manly and a warrior. So the thing that he's really impressed by is all the quote unquote masculine qualities of Joan. So actually this rather kind of non-binary way in which Joan is presenting really strikes Jason. Another figure, Christine de Pizan, who writes a poem about mm. Joan of Arc, is really struck by her femininity. And the fact that it's so striking that God should choose a weak woman to kind of do his work. And the fact is that Joan opens herself up or themselves up to these very different readings from different contemporaries. And that's fine. And it works very well. So I think it's very plausible that now we're doing the same thing in a sense. We're kind of echoing that sense that Joan is able to be lots of different things and open up lots of possibilities and lots of questions in a really enriching sort of way. I suppose one of the points one could make is that she or they always has done. I mean, this is part, I suppose, of the play's point, is it? That when we decide to claim a historical figure for revitalization, reimagination, we are bringing a whole load of assumptions about them that we can't possibly ever know. And Joan of Arc seems to be a tremendously good example of that. Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary the way Joan has proved such a malleable sort of figure over time and been co-opted by so many different groups. And in a sense, that's all the more extraordinary because Joan has so much to say for herself or themselves in the historical record. So, I mean, by modern standards, obviously, it's not very much, but this many words from a medieval peasant woman or person. And in those words, so during the trial when Joan speaks up, and in the various letters which they dictate, and then various other little hints we have here and there of Joan's words, there's a real sense that Joan themselves or herself, they're sort of not pinning themselves down exactly. And equally, that there's a real shift in their attitude to how they think about their gender over the course of their career. 
well, actually, just before we get to the other interpretations of it, there was, alas, uh, sort of predictably, some sound and fury, wasn't there, in print and social media? There was some sort of raging about how how can this possibly be true? That's all died down, I think, wasn't that? Was did you think that was a storm in a teacup type thing? I think it's died down, and I think it's really telling. And I think equally, for me, the thing that strikes me most about that. I suppose partly just I don't understand why people should feel so threatened by a play about Joan of Arc. That seems to me very strange. But I think also the thing that really strikes me about it is how nowadays we concoct this kind of row about Joan's gender in a way that I don't think really took place in the 15th century. And one of the article's accusation is to do with the fact that they're wearing male clothing. But at the same time, the idea that somebody who is presenting themselves in a at least gender fluid kind of way could gain the ear of the king and could be this kind of powerful and I don't know altogether magnificent in their military career and political career albeit only for about a year at the court I think now just seems kind of inconceivable that um, in 2022 somebody could get that kind of reception actually and that reaction to the play I think is really quite scary and suggesting that in many ways we're more categorical in the way we think about things than people were in the 15th century. It's interesting isn't it because a lot of that I mean there's one impulse that I understand which is to fight against the erasure of female history and the mm. idea that women don't feature in the historical record but you're right, this seems a very sort of about face and self-limiting and self-defeating way to go about it. Because you're talking about someone who, you know, as per the historical record, despite the interpretations that we're putting on Joan, absolutely tried to claim a space for herself. And there are all sorts of ways of looking at how that happened. And it seems to me, without having seen the play, that this play is an attempt to do that. On that note, one thing that I was really struck by in the play was the presentation of Yolanda and Marie of Anjou, who are respectively the mother-in-law and wife of the king. And it was really refreshing to see them there as kind of part of them in the court. I thought that was very cool that that had been noticed and that they were there as really powerful figures. But in the play, they were kind of made to represent a kind of 1980s, 1990s sort of feminism, which was pitted against what Joan was up to. So they started off in the play by being very supportive of her and then they want her to dress as like any other kind of female courtier and behave like other women in the court. The play sort of presented what seems like a very modern sort of conflict between different versions of feminism, to put it bluntly. And I don't think in the 15th century that there is that kind of conflict. I think actually there's a, there are no feminists in the 15th century, that's not what I'm saying, but I think there's a much more capacious sense of how those who are oppressed or excluded might conceive of that exclusion as one, in a sense. Mm. There's a 14th century saint called Wilgefortis, who seems to be a completely made up figure. But Wilgefortis was a Portuguese princess. Her father wanted her to marry the pagan king of Sicily. Wilgefortis doesn't want to do this, prays to God for release and wakes up in the morning with a luxuriant beard. And the king of Sicily says, right, I'm not going to marry you. <laughs> father, their father is so angry that they crucify them. Oh, okay. Less fun. But Wilgefortis becomes a really very popular saint in the 14th, 15th centuries. And one to whom we know that men prayed. We know that women prayed. We know from something in what Sir Thomas More said in the 16th century that women in abusive relationships prayed to Wilgefortis for relief from domestic abuse and so on. And we think that Wilgefortis was also a very powerful saint. The excluded, the oppressed and the marginalised could kind of come together. There's not this kind of conflict between different versions of protest and empowerment that we tend to assume now. Someone made the point to me that here and now, as it were, being put on in London at Shakespeare's Globe, the play feels as though it's all about gender identity or a lot of it. Whereas if you put it on in, say, Kiev, it would be seen perhaps as all about fighting and resistance and, you know, resisting the oppressor. Do you think we always overlay our own issues of place and time on historical situations? That's really interesting. And I'm sure it's right. And in a sense, one could write a history of 
European political thought in its sort of popular sense, all through the prism of Joan of Arc, I think, and the ways in which Joan has been used mm. and portrayed at various points, and the way people have drawn out the military persona or the issues about gender identity or the issues about rejection of established religion, different emphases at different points, certainly. In this play, the comments about gender identity are well, they're not comments, they are, are long, very, very powerful speeches and kind of manifestos, which are absolutely explicit, but which I think have points, to go back to the earlier sense of sort of capaciousness, have points beyond thinking about non-binary identities to thinking about humanity. And that was sort of what I came away from the play, this sense that humanity is about opening out possibilities and thinking about the divine in each one of us in really stimulating ways and ways that certainly go against the grain of the 42 theologians who condemned Joan, but I don't think go against the grain of a sort of general ethos in the 15th century where people were interested in thinking of themselves as people and exploring the way in which the divine forms part of every single one of us and is kind of immanent around us. Well, to do what Joan did requires not only tenaciousness, but a kind of single-mindedness that some may say borders on a kind of form of dysfunction, really. I suppose when you think of, you know, charismatics, for example, you know, and that, that kind of will to power that is actually quite unnerving. And I wondered if that came out in the play at all as well. Yes, it really did. Joan is portrayed as staggeringly single-minded in the play and with a kind of momentum and that none of the figures around them even come close to. That impression is portrayed dramatically, just really brilliantly by the kind of movement of the figures as well, and the sense that Joan is kind of constantly on the move and constantly just really, really excited. And that excitement is kind of infectious, particularly in the space of the globe, where as an audience you feel kind of drawn into it all. And the figures around them, particularly in the court of Charles VII, kind of stand around looking a little bit indecisive and a little bit bored and a little bit kind of stuck in their ways and just don't have this sense of kind of, as you put it, single-mindedness and passion. But there was another lovely point which was made in the play where Joan is always in the play in a rush. They want to get stuff done now. They want a particular <laughs> attack to happen now. And the military commander is always kind of you know, saying, well, it's not a good moment, let's just wait till morning. But at the same time, real sense that that kind of let's wait and see attitude is a luxury that you don't get to have. So on the one hand, Joan has this kind of momentum because they're charismatic and because they're a leader, but they also have this kind of momentum and this sense of urgency, because if you're not already in a kind of empowered position, you don't have the luxury of waiting and seeing and hanging around being bored and, you know, having a good sleep first sort of thing. Yes, you have to grasp the moment, don't you, while you've got it. Mm. The issues we'd be discussing are all serious and sort of thought-provoking, but you stress in your piece, and it's important to say, isn't it, that the play is very life-affirming and joyous from the music mm. and the set and the dancing. It sounds like a very joyous occasion. It really is. Like I was looking around at other audience members during the performance and people were smiling most of the time. Obviously not at the really appalling moments, but there was just a really lovely atmosphere there. And there's quite a lot of laughter as well. There are quite a lot of jokes, some of them pretty wry ones about the treatment of non-binary people in particular and the way in which Joan is kind of coming up against sort of brick wall of dogma and so on. They managed to raise a laugh on a very regular basis from the audience. And that was just lovely. And I have to say, none that I have seen before in a portrayal of Joan. It's like, normally you have to absolutely brace yourself before watching a play or a film about Joan or reading the trial document or something. So I don't know. I feel like I should go back to the trial document now and see if I can find any moments which kind of raise a laugh. <laughs> Not convinced that they're there, but, but there are a few moments in the trial when Joan is kind of, on the one hand, she's defiant, but she's also kind of right. Like the judges will ask her a particular question and she'll say effectively I'm, I'm not going to answer that now until I've consulted my voices and then I'll get back to you on it brilliant the voices being the divine voices exactly yeah and her tone is it's obviously unbelievably courageous but it is also in some ways it, it kind of makes you smile that here's a 17 year old woman 
or person who is quite prepared to sort of just say, no, you've got to wait. And then at one point they're asked something about the voices and Joan responds with a comment about how, you know, well, if I say that, I know that you're going to condemn me, so I'm not going to say that. And there is, there's a sort of sense that there's a bit of wry humour sort of underlying it. It's definitely not on the kind of joyous scale of the play, but still. One thing I was interested in was our sort of continuing preoccupation with Joan. And there is a novel recently published by Catherine Chen called uh, Joan. And I was thinking about the sort of interest too in medieval women. There was a, a novel, gosh, last year, uh, Lauren Groff's book Matrix. And this, we are fascinated by these medieval women, aren't we? Yeah, there's no straightforward answer to why we're why we're so interested in them. But it's certainly true. There's a kind of panoply of really extraordinary figures over the course of the Middle Ages, who on the one hand made all the more extraordinary by all the constraints which they're struggling against and so on. But I wonder whether part of the fascination comes from the fact that those constraints don't work straightforwardly in the ways that we might assume. So the kind of patriarchy and misogyny that we're used to in many ways I think kind of late 18th century 19th century constructions and they they function so differently in the middle ages and actually there are ways in which women can express themselves um, and ways in which they experience constraints which are very very different and sort of open up different sets of opportunities. Well it's wonderful to have such an expert on it and to be able to you know tell us things from the trial and to have your perspective on it so uh, thank you so much Hannah for talking to us today from a slightly glitchy line for which I think we can blame the Wi-Fi of Oxford University. It's my pleasure. Thank you. have time for this week our thanks go to Dennis Joe and Hannah Skoda and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.